Churchill was affected by his experience in the First World War and by what he heard about that happened at Gallipoli, which he was in part responsible for. And it did make him more cautious about committing British troops in the Second World War, particularly in them going over the top in ways that would result in, in mass numbers of deaths. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Now today my guest is Anthony Seldon, author of a number of best-selling books on prime ministers and most recently a book called Path of Peace, Walking the Western Front Way. Now this book was written by Anthony at a difficult time for him. His wife had sadly died and it was around the time of Covid. But he was inspired to set up a trail from the border of Switzerland all the way to the Belgian coast following the trenches of the Western Front. The result is the Western Front Way, which is now up and running and available to walk and cycle along. And all links I've put in the show notes. Anthony has set this up himself, but it wasn't his idea. That belonged to a British officer who had a dream of a walk to unite the allies and enemies of the First World War. Tragically, that officer was killed. But his dream lived on in his letters until Anthony found them and now the Western Front Way is established. Back in January, you may have heard my discussion with the distinguished historian Gary Sheffield on the history of the Great War. If you haven't, please do go back and listen. I heartily recommend it. But today's chat is a little bit more about the emotion that the war prompts. We discuss Anthony's inspiration, why the war does prompt those very emotions even today, and whether the sacrifice was worth it. Anthony has been headmaster of a number of schools, so we talk about how they were affected by the war too. Coming up, I've got James Rom on the aftermath of Alexander the Great's death, Adam Zamoyski on Napoleon's invasion of Russia, Miranda Malins and Paul Lay on the 17th century, and the Film Club returns with Argo, directed by Ben Affleck. Please do subscribe and rate and review if you can. Links are in the show notes, including an article I wrote about whether the Great War was a waste. In the meantime, I'm going to hand you over to me talking with Anthony Seldon. Anthony Seldon, welcome. Well, I've got to be honest. I, in November, my mother alerted me to the book. So I was rather lackadaisical in finding out about it. And so I was very keen to speak to you because this, this book, I mean, is, well, it's just very important. The Great War, you walked a thousand kilometers. So I, I hope your feet haven't had any after effects. That's my first question because, well, uh, thank you for asking that. There, I've just had a look and, uh, and a check, and they're still there. They are still there on the end of my legs. So that's good news. And, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, I hope, long-term damage, but the skin was pretty lacerated in different places. And I learned a lot, really, about taking uh, one's feet seriously, particularly as I'm hoping very much to do another walk this coming summer, which is slightly longer. And so, you know, I mean, I was very naive. I didn't, I didn't think enough about, uh, uh, really enough about the boots one's wearing or the socks. I mean, often it was the socks that were rubbing. I mean, it was well over a million paces. So that's a million rubs of one's skin with quite heavy pounding down. I mean, I'm quite light, but still quite heavy pounding. So, so, 
uh, yeah, I mean, it, you just got to learn if you're doing it, anyone listening, to show a lot more thought and respect for one's feet and one's body in general than I did. Absolutely. And I will, because I'm fully intending this, we're talking about the Western Front Way. And this is something that you set up. And it's a hugely powerful, well, the walk, you walk past these cemeteries from the First World War. So I thought, could you just explain the what the Western Front Way is and why you, you set, set it up and also, you know, why you wrote the book? The Western Front Way is a path which is in the process of being marked out for both walkers and cyclists from the Swiss-French border in a place called Kilometer Zero, which is where in the First World War the, the lines finished, the lines of trenches petered out on Swiss soil and no man's land petered out. And that was it. That was the end of the line, literally. And it goes from there all the way up through, through the Vosges and Alsace-Lorraine, all the way up through up through Verdun and up through Artois, up to into Belgium and up to the North Sea. So that's a thousand kilometers. The bit that's best marked is the bit closest the news is closest to uh, uh the English Channel and the North Sea uh, for walkers and cyclists. And we're hoping that within not too distant past it will all be properly marked out. And there's a very good website, Western Frontway website, that shows you what is marked out. And there's also a very good walking and a very good cycling app. So I uh, strongly recommend those. And then finally, what was I doing walking it? That's quite simple, I hope to explain, which is that uh, when I was working on another book about 10 years ago, I came across a letter from a soldier who had written to his former headmaster at his school, Winchester College, South of England, and said that if I survive the war, I would like to see created a pathway from Switzerland all the way to the North Sea, exactly as we're now creating, along which I want every man and woman in Europe to walk as a reminder of the horrors of war, of where war leads. From, he said, the silent witnesses, the dead on both sides. So what we're doing, uh, what I was doing on that walk, what the whole idea is, is, is to do something which is not absolutely not my idea. It was an idea of a soldier who perished 107 years ago in September 1915 at the Battle of Luce on the first day, 25th of September 1915. And his name is Douglas Gillespie. And so we are creating his vision for a path of peace across the line, along the line of the Western and what is it, do you think, about the First World War that grabs us emotionally? That I would say the Second World War is le less so. I don't know if you would agree with that. I would agree very much. And I think it's a great question that I and many people listening may have reflected about. And I, the Second World War is fascinating. And, of course, we have much better color photography and we have moving film of the battles. We don't have any moving shots of the battles of Ypres and Passchendaele and the Somme or Verdun. There wasn't the technology to do that at the time to capture moving battle scenes. 
So we, in a way, have less idea about it, and yet somehow it seems to be nearer. And I think it's got a lot to do with the sheer magnitude of the horror, the scale of losses, nearly a million people killed and on the Battle of the Somme, 60,000, 60,000 casualties on just the first day. And the sense of, of the folly and the, the damage it did to communities across the whole country. Now, uh, that's three times as many dying in the Second World War, which lasted almost two years longer. So a much more horrific war and a war which might not have thrown up lots of great uh, photography, moving images of battles, but it did throw up a great deal of poetry and, and remarkable writing and indeed remarkable painting. Paul Nash, John Nash, are just, uh, and John Singer Sargent just have produced some of the finest painting of the entire uh, 20th century. So I think in these ways, the poetry, the prose, the novels, most recently we've seen it in the film of All Quiet on the Western Front, or indeed the film of Journey's End, made a couple of years before that. These are such powerful images that get us back into the idea of the trenches. Well, throughout the book, that you do mention the sacrifice. Well, of course, it's a running theme. And I got the impression that you questioned whether it was worth it. I don't know if that's fair of me. But do you, do you think the sacrifice was worth it? The Second World War was far more obviously a war of good against evil or good resisting evil coming from Germany, coming from fascism. The, the fundamentally racist ideology of nationalistic uh, wars that were fought and the loss of six million Jews, but the loss of 50 million people altogether in that war as opposed to some 19 million only, 19 million in the First World War. So had Hitler not been resisted in the Second World War, then the whole of Europe would have fallen under that terrible regime that denied democracy, denied freedom denied much of, of the, the liberties we love as human beings. So you could see that in the First World War, it was far less clear that the German regime or Austro-Hungarian was in any way more brutal than the regime or, or more anti-democratic than the regime in, in London. And yet we, you could also say that it was Germany that had invaded Belgium, had invaded northern France and needed to be resisted. As against that, Germany was saying it was merely acting first before it was surrounded on both sides by enemies bringing it under great threat. So, you know, it's more of a morally complex issue. And did 1945 at the end of the Second World War lead to peace in uh, Europe? Undeniably, Germany wasn't humiliated in the same way after the Second War as it was after the First, and neither were to the same extent other defeated powers, so there was a learning there about not being vindictive, and peace has reigned pretty much for the last 75 years, or more or less, perhaps one should say, whereas after the First World War, within 19 years, Europe was back at each other's throats, having had a very unstable years following the First World War. So it was less evident the First World War was fought to, to secure a better world. I find that this question difficult because 
and my own family, as so many uh, have had family members who were who were killed in the war. And if it is, if that sacrifice is questioned, it's what makes it such a difficult question. It's these deaths happen for nothing. It's not a very nice feeling, is it? And I think someone needs to be careful. When I was coming back, as I described in the book, there was the scuffle out of Afghanistan and the very real sense then from the families of 454 British servicemen, as well as the far greater numbers of American families who had lost loved ones in Afghanistan. What was that all for? Clearly, the First World War was about a lot more uh, enduring gain than the than the Afghanistan war had been. People like Seafried Sassoon questioned the, the validity and the need for the war, but you know, it happened, and people showed enormous courage and self-sacrifice and dignity and heroism and loyalty who took part in this war that was supposed to be the war that would end all wars ever happening in the future. So I think in somebody who, who lost relatives in the war, definitely it was fought for something, even if the moral absolutes are not as clear as in the Second World War. So I wanted to ask you, because you, you've obviously written many books on prime ministers, and it's very affecting to read in Path of Peace about prime ministers, I think in particular, well, prime ministers who served during the war and how it affected them, but then also prime ministers whose sons served and were killed during the war. And I wanted to know, obviously, it's it, it would be trite of me su- to suggest that, you know, you need to have this experience to be a good prime minister, but this experience is hugely powerful influence on, on prime ministers, wouldn't you say? Of course, absolutely. And so it's very much a, a question for debate whether seeing suffering makes for more contemplative, cautious uh, leaders who will go much further to avoid war or whether exposure to blood and gore makes people more angry and vengeful. Putin has seen a lot of the horrors of war with his own eyes, but it's done nothing to make him a more compassionate or peace-loving leader. So I suppose the jury has to be out on on that, and you need to have horror to make you a more civilised, decent human being. Let's hope not. And yet you can't help feeling that Churchill was affected by his experience in the First World War and by what he heard about that happened at Gallipoli, which he was in part responsible for. And it did make him more cautious about committing British troops in the Second World War, particularly in them going over the top in ways that would result in, in mass numbers of death. I mean, it's, it is not surprising that if you have a machine gun, which is a machine as well as a gun, which is spitting out bullets at, at one a second or, or quicker, and they're traveling at four or five hundred miles an hour through the air, that when they hit a human body, the body isn't going to be able to stop that and, and that it will do immense damage inside that body, this little piece of metal traveling at speed. So once you've seen it, you've seen the mechanized horror of it, you've seen the utter, utter helplessness of the British body to, to resist the mechanization of, of war, 
one would hope that it would make that it makes people more compassionate, cautious, enlightened, less vainglorious, but it doesn't seem to in some readers. And and the fighting of their own children, so Andrew Bonnelaw, as he was called the conservative leader, lost children and was extraordinarily painful. And the Prime Minister, H. H. Asquith, lost his son Raymond. And I talk in the book about how he went across to the Battle of the Somme to see Raymond and what a wonderful time they had and how that evening Smith went to the headquarters at Montreuil and was drinking with Haig and how Haig told his wife that he got altogether rather sozzled that evening. But at least you know he'd gone across and seen the battle. You can see bits of that all the way up to the present day with Johnson going to the Ukraine. Obviously not British troops fighting, but to get a closer sense, understanding what what's happening. So in a way, it's perhaps a good thing that leaders do have their children fighting themselves because it makes them more cautious about not permitting other people's children to, to fight in, in avoidably dangerous positions. But equally, the effect on a leader is devastating. Utterly, utterly devastating. And it would be hard for them and hard for Asquith and hard for Bonalore to continue being as effective as leaders, carrying that extraordinary grief of the loss of a child. So, you know, again, a lot of these questions don't have direct answers, but they probe challenges and, uh, and people can be found on both sides of these arguments. The First World War really captured my imagination when I was at school and I was I was taken, I think I must have been 14, I was taken by the English teacher, interestingly, to the crypt of our school church. And there's just seem to be endless numbers of names in the crypt of those who died in the First World War. And this was a public school. And I know you've written about public schools in the Great War. And so I was, was keen to ask you, there's this reputation of lions led by donkeys, this probably myth. But also, I wondered whether the experience of public schools and public school families you know, by their nature, tend to be in more powerful positions. Do you think that's weighted the the view of the First World War a little bit unnaturally in a way, because it's the public schools that have sacrificed a lot of young men, but they tend to get more, because their families will be in more prominent positions, therefore the narrative is set, if you see what I mean. Uh, so, Britain is unlike these other combatant nations, and it has such a a large number coming through independent schools. Some seven percent of all school children are at private or independent schools, and these schools, in part because they have uh, cadet activity, combined cadet forces, uh, CCFs, which are there in state schools, but nothing like the same proportion. Um, you have a lot of so- socialization of Leavers into the military or indeed the Air Force or the Navy in schools, and that means that higher numbers can join and that they'll be joining younger and they're perhaps more likely to go on and be officers. So we find that in both world wars, books about both world wars and the effect of public schools on them were heavily dominated by those people who've been at public schools, but not just the fighting, but also the administrators back in Whitehall and the MPs and the 
uh, photographers and poets and the writers and the historians and the artists are all disproportionately from independent schools and so that's going to affect you know, a way that we see the war and understand it they're also overwhelmingly male women were not out fighting women were there uh, close to the front helping in hospitals, often very makeshift hospitals, and they were driving vehicles around. It is, it is, you know, quite a big focus on, on public schools fighting in, in the wars. And, and we see that, uh, whereas those people who've been at state schools, roughly in the first world war, roughly 10% of those who signed up who'd been at a state school were killed. So you had a one in 10 chance of being killed for being a state school. If you've been at a boarding school, you had a one in five chance uh, of being killed. So that's 20%. So it means, does mean that the public school uh, products, people who've been in public school, were dying at roughly twice the rate. So there had been an old belief that public school boys were a long way behind the front line, as we see in that great, magnificent series, Blackadder, that, that there they are, long way behind, completely safe, whereas it's the working class lads who are out fighting and dying. That isn't borne out by the facts. Twice as many, uh, as we said, of, of people born into school died. And there's a number of reasons for that. But two are that they were, for the first stage of the war, not wearing metal coverings on their head, but they were wearing cloth caps to identify themselves as officers. And secondly, Snipers would always want to hit an officer rather than ordinary, an ordinary soldier. So if you want to damage somebody, you, you fire at the brain, not at the body. And that's what, that's what happened. So, you know, yes, I mean, they were huge parts of public schools and quite distorted parts of the whole war. Actually, I wanted to bore you for a moment because I have two of my great uncles were killed in the First World War. I have always thought it's quite an interesting story because one of my um one of my great uncles was the son of a, a senior army officer and he was joined the army, volunteered, I think before the war, but he bounced the check. And so his father disowned him and he left the army in disgrace. World War One breaks out, he volunteers under a different name, an assumed name, and joins in the ranks, rises to the rank of sergeant, gets a military medal, but then is killed in the third battle of Arras. And it's that's just one story in the family. I think there are, we've got others, but it, that one I've always found so fascinating. And reading your book, there are many, many stories like that, that, you know, you see these names on the wall, but each behind them, there is this fascinating backstory that maybe we don't know about. And it, it just seems so tragic that, you know, these, uh, their lives are snuffed out at such a young age. I guess what I'm trying to get to is there, there is always a story behind every death that we, that we see on those walls, isn't there? There is. And so if you look at the big memorials, if you look at the memorial at the top of, um, Passchendaele on Ypres, above Ypres, there are 35,000 names on the, walls of the memorial at the top of that cemetery called Tynecourt of unknown unknown dead known but they, they have no known graves there were no body parts left capable of with with surety being able to identify that they were indeed that person so they're 
names uh, of people whose bodies were lost. And then on the, um, the Menin Gate in Ypres, there are some 60,000 names. And uh, at the Somme, at the Tietvar Memorial, designed by Edwin Lutchins, there are 73,000 names. And each of your point, which I absolutely reflect on all the time, is that each of those names were sons, or they were very few women, by the way, sons, or they were brothers, or they were fathers, and they were friends of, of people. And all that world has been lost. And the sadness is that with the current generation, when they pass, there will be very few people who, who knew anybody who was alive at the time of the uh, First World War. I mean, nobody now can remember the First World War, but a lot of people can remember, as can I, my very elderly grandfather, who was a very, I remember as a very young man, I, very young child, rather, I can hear him talking about the First World War, and it was incredible. But, you know, you lose all that, and therefore you are even one further step removed from all the names of those who had no grave or no known grave and uh, all those who, uh, who who did die and keep the reason certain that they are, that the name on the grave is the same as the body underneath it. But, you know, they have stories too and, and trying to keep these people alive because the shocking thing is that they were kids often in their 17, some of them 16 only, very rarely 15 who'd lied about their age, incredibly young with their whole lives in front of them. And they would have lived throughout much of the 20th century. And they didn't. They, they, they fell at the very beginning of the 20th century. And all that loss of human talent and love and creativity and potential and staggering. It is. And I think that's why reading your book, that, that, the walk, the Western Front way is, well, I think we can both encourage listeners to do the walk. And so you start off in Switzerland. And I wanted to just talk a little bit about the French side of things because obviously the British losses were huge, but the French loss, I think, was more than, I think around 4% or more than 4% of their entire population. And walking from Switzerland or the border of Switzerland through Alsace and, and up to Verdun, I wondered, was there a kind of, and you were walking during COVID, so it's a bit of a strange time, but was there a difference between the British and, and French sectors, as it were? Well, so the front is roughly 600 miles long or a thousand kilometers and roughly, roughly 750 kilometers of it are in uh, see, overseen by French soldiers, and very obviously the French were protecting their own soil. Britain wasn't physically under attack in the same way, and Germans were actually camped on French soil. It was a battle for survival in a way that it wasn't to the same extent, or not the same obvious extent, for British soldiers. Had the Germans won in France, they then had to got over the channel, which was a state of basic amphibious land and craft at the time, would have you know, perhaps even been impossible. So the French, much more, it's much more of an existential fight that they were under. They were fighting in a much wider area. They had more troops. And the funny thing, which I keep coming back to in the book, is you would expect, wouldn't you, what well, I would, did, 
uh, still do, the French to be far more aware of the war uh, in their schools, at the school parties, and be looking after the monuments and museums far more passionately. But in fact, it is the, the lack of interest in France that was very striking to me, rather than very keen interest. I wonder why that is. Well, I think a number of explanations. The French had a Second World War, which, where the country was, all of it was occupied, and it was a bad memory for France. Uh, it divided the nation between the majority who were resisting the Germans and collaborators who were not. And they didn't look back to the First World War as a very happy or successful time. Their armies mutinied. There was enormous resentment and horror at the scale of, of the death. The country suffered in the interwar years and was then invaded just after the, just 18 years after the end of the war. So it, you know, it, it, sorry, 22 years after the end of the war, warranted in 18 and they were invaded in 1940. So, it is, yeah, it's a different perspective, different feeling. And you see that in the French cemeteries and in the French museums and monuments, memorials, the, the, the relative lack of interest in the war. So all along the French sector, which is the area in the middle of France, the area going all the way to Switzerland, you, you're far less aware of French museums, although there's a wonderful one on the Somme battlefield at a place called Peron, Peron. But that's kind of the exception that proves the rule that the French are doing much less to be awake to, to students and parties visiting and to cater for them and try and give them a good historical immersion than those than in Britain, where it, it just was much more part of our DNA, and we seem to care more about it. You just reminded me, actually, because I know you've taken uh, school trips out to, to the Western Front. I've just been reading about one of your party who returned to England with a piece of ordnance that was live. Yeah, it was a shocker. I mean, now that would be on the front page of the Daily Mail. And what happened was their father was in the territorial army and he bought it actually from a museum and it turned out to still have partly a live detonation at the top. So the bomb disposal uh, in this country came round and dealt with it, took it off. But in France, as I talk about in the book, there are people killed every year from the massive numbers of shells, unknown number, maybe 10 million, maybe 50 million shells still under the soil, which keep coming up to the surface. So it is dangerous, and the shells become more unstable with the passage of time, not uh, less dangerous. So, you know, that was a lucky escape. And when I first went out there, took group, groups in the 1980s, when I first started teaching, there were shells lying around on the battlefield that you could pick up. And somebody picked up one of those, and it did turn out again to be partly live. So, you know, that's changed a lot and health and safety has, has changed a lot. And the, the numbers who go out there now in the 2020s compared to the 1980s, 40 years before, there are vastly bigger numbers now that go. And, you know, that's another interesting question to ask. Why is it as the war fades 
uh, in 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 live memory and fades in distance, why does it appear that many more people are going out to it? And you know, why indeed is the Western Front Way Walk proving to be so popular? Which I'm delighted that it is, of course. Is it younger generations as well? Because obviously it's important to keep the uh, the flame alive, as it were. Yeah, I, it is. Uh, and many schools, state schools and uh, independent schools are organised trips. And it's comparatively easy to get across to France, and, and that helps through Eurostar. Most places in Britain, if not in Scotland, you can get there and leave early in the morning and, and be in a hotel or hostel by that evening, ready to go the next morning. So it's, it's not impossibly far, it's not impossibly expensive to take trips, and, and the student girls as well as boys like it a lot, and, and they're often combined with English trips, learning about the prose, and the, particularly the poetry, and indeed the the art from the war. So it's um, and indeed there's a lot of learning to be done about science and, and, and technology. It's a very humanising thing for people to go, and again that's ironic, isn't it, that, that going to a battlefield should somehow make us more humane and more compassionate. It gets back to the questions you were asking at the beginning about does an experience of, of war or seeing it feed the appetite, the hunger for war, or does it do more to open the heart and, and to have people empathizing with the sadness and the dreadful grief and, and loss? I think the latter, but obviously not in all cases. Well, I know we're coming to the end of the uh, of this, so thanks, thanks very much, Anthony. Now, where I think you mentioned the website at the beginning, but let's just mention it again. If anyone okay. wants to find out more, it's what? Where should they go? It's called the Western Front Way website, Western Front Way, and there's an app that you can find out about the walking routes and cycling routes, and it will tell you all about the things to see on the way. So to walk the whole route will probably take six weeks, but one could always do that, as people do with the Camino path to Santiago de Compostela uh, in northern Spain. You can spread that over several years, doing maybe one or two weeks walking each year, picking up the following year where one left off the previous year. Um, cycling probably... 12 to 14 days at a relatively gentle pace of, well, relatively gentle of uh, some 70 kilometers, 40, 50 miles a day. And there are lots of wonderful places to stay and to eat and to drink and cafes and, and places to see along uh, the way. So it's all there on the website, Western Front Way, and there's a wonderful team now who've organized to promulgate it and to get more people uh, walking along. And the Belgian government have been fantastic about it. The French government and the various local governments are getting more and more interested in it. And of course, they recognize this is great for their local economies and uh, great for tourism, great for the economy. And why not? Street history everywhere is one of the great joy for people and source of stimulus to understand more about what really happened. And and it does, it does appeal to boys and, and the male, it just appeals to all kinds of people with all kinds of, of interest. And fundamentally, this is about a walk for peace. Uh, this, the vision of the soldier was he wanted 
people of all nationalities, all faiths, all backgrounds who walk together side by side, recognizing what they share together and finding points in common rather than points of difference to fight over. So that's the whole idea of it. It works. And to each person listening to this, we make a choice, don't we, in our, in our own lives. Now, are we going to find uh, lives of greater common identity with people of all different backgrounds, people perhaps very different, we think are very different to ourselves, or do we just want to stick with our own narrow tribe uh, and shout and scream and fight others because they're not part of our tribe or our team and, and we hate them because they're different. This path is all about learning from and learning to embrace and ultimately I guess to love people for their differences rather than to hate people and the hatred leads to war uh, and on and on. That cycle goes. Well Anthony that's a, a very lovely way to end it so thank you. My pleasure and thank you so much for Oliver the interest. Thanks very much for listening. I do hope that inspires some of you to head to France for a long weekend or even a more extended visit to walk along the Western Front Way. It's not a bad place to spend a holiday. What with the Alsace and Champagne regions involved? Links to Anthony's site and book are in the show notes, as well as my piece on the Great War. Please do subscribe and tell your friends. Now, before I go, I wanted to mention a podcast that's out from old friend of the show, Giles Milton. Giles and I had a brief chat about it, and so here's our discussion, which hopefully whets your appetite. This new pod is full of mystery, secrets, and lies. Giles Milton, old friend of Aspects of History, has returned to talk about your new podcast, very exciting new podcast. So I thought I'd get you on. We could just very briefly hear a little bit of a teaser from you about what it is, so the listeners can then seek it out themselves but it's called ministry of secrets but giles please tell me a little bit about it yeah it's a crazy story it's a story of a missing person a wartime hero a spy who he disappeared while on a dive in portsmouth harbour in 1956 he disappeared and vanished into thin air he was never seen again and the big question is what happened to this person and when we investigated this story, it was just extraordinary because it opened into so many unexpected avenues. It involves the royal family. It involves MI6. It involves the CIA. It involves the KGB. But what is really shocking, Ollie, is that this story was the subject of a cover-up in 1956. And it's a cover-up that continues to this day. Unbelievably, Whitehall, someone in Whitehall, is still uh, refusing to release the documents on this mystery into the public domain. They've been embargoed for 100 years and won't be released till 2057. And so we set out to find out what happened and who is blocking access to these papers. Well, I've just listened to the first episode and I found my myself moving closer and closer to the edge of my seat because it's just so intriguing you know all these cold war secrets that are still out there today and i was just wondering i know we can't really talk about the secret itself you have to listen to the podcast and i really do encourage listeners to do that but as i was listening to the first episode i was thinking to myself what is it about britain that we are so secret about things like this, which you would have thought, as you say, 1956, ancient history to some. 
The Americans seem to be a little bit more generous with information. For example, the torture program from the Iraq war. We in Britain, we seem to love secrecy. Yeah, we have a, time and again with people we interviewed said we have a, a an extraordinary culture of secrecy in this country that, you know, if if uh, if there's anything mildly embarrassing, oh, let's cover it up. You know, let's let's not release it into the public domain. But we were told from the outset by an investigative journalist that, you know, in any cover up, there are always cracks in that cover up. And if you can get inside those cracks, you might begin to find the truth. What we were incredibly fortunate about was we discovered a number of people, key people involved in this affair in 1956 who were still alive. So one of them was the journalist who originally broke the story in 1956 and then investigated the beginnings of the cover up. He was still alive, age 90. He was absolutely brilliant. And to be honest, we got to the end of our podcast. We thought we had the whole thing wrapped up, you know, it had a pretty good ending to it. And then we discovered a 97-year-old woman who knew everything. And she is our ultimate witness in, in, in the final episode, episode eight. Well, I can't wait to listen to that. Where can listeners listen? I'm on Google Podcasts, so I'm on one a week, I think. Yeah, it's on it's on every platform from Spotify to Apple Podcasts to to everything. At the moment, they release one a week. So it's released over eight weeks. You can binge it. Sony, who've uh, produced it, they have their own platform called The Binge. And you can you can binge it. But I, I think you have to pay a few dollars to do that. Everything in moderation, I think. Exactly. <laughs> Giles, thanks so much for coming on. I'll put links in the show notes for all our listeners. Brilliant. That's great. Well, I do hope people enjoy it. I'm sure they will. There you go, dear listeners. I hope that's intriguing for you. In the meantime, thank you for listening. I do hope you can subscribe and recommend to your friends. I'd be hugely appreciative. Thank you and good night.